Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, or the author and, and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now if you'll turn to the Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Father, thank you so much for your word, the privilege we have on your day to be in it again. And we ask that you would encourage us, that you would meet us as your children, as our father, as our shepherd and your son, and that your spirit would illuminate, reaffirm these wonderful truths. And we praise you for the privilege of being together in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And so as we uh, mentioned this morning, we want to talk about the pilgrim's journey. The pilgrim's journey. Um, likely all of you have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, John Bunyan's classic. Uh, it was published in 1678. Uh, it is one of the best-selling books uh, of all time in history. Uh, until the mid-20th century, it was second only to the Bible in terms of copies sold, and is still listed as one of the top-selling books of all time. It has remained continuously in print since 1678. If you haven't read it, uh, uh, I strongly encourage you to do so. Um, someone has told me that you have to read Pilgrim's Progress for entrance into heaven. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, yeah, it's pretty drastic, but nevertheless... Uh, if you haven't, it is indeed a classic. I would encourage you to read it to your children. Uh, if not, read it to your grandchildren. Uh, it depicts the life which Bunyan himself lived. Uh, and at the same time, it, it, is a, it is a picture of the life that all of us uh, will live as well and are living. Augustus Toplady uh, said of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the book describes every stage of the Christian's experience from conversion to glorification. Uh, and for those of you who have read it, bear with me, because uh, I want to offer this to those who have not. It is an allegory. Uh, Bunyan wrote another allegory, which is lesser known, but it's still as impactful, I think, uh, Holy War. Uh, it is a very, it's, it's far more difficult to read than Pilgrim's Progress, but uh, it is the battle for man's soul, and I would encourage you to read that as well. But back to Pilgrim's Progress. It is an allegory. The main character uh, is named Christian. 
Uh, Christian becomes aware of his sin. He's, he lives in the city of destruction with his family. Uh, he is determined that he's leaving because he knows that it's the wrath of God is going to fall upon the city and it's going to fall upon him because of the burden of sin that he cannot get off. Uh, he begins the pilgrim's progress, the journey. He goes to the cross. The, the burden falls off. Uh, he is headed towards the place called the Celestial City. Uh, we read that in Revelation 21. Uh, the New Jerusalem. It is a place of bliss. And along the way, Christian encounters all these difficulties of the Christian life. And the language that Bunyan used is absolutely profound. I mean, here's the tinker, the energy-educated tinker who wrote a book that is so depicting of the, of the Christian life. And that as he writes, he encounters uh, great opposition from characters such as Mr. Talkative, uh, Mr. Worldly Wise. He will encounter places of great danger, Vanity Fair, Doubting Castle. Uh, he will face Apollyon and his great, his great foe, as well as the chained lions challenging his faith. He will go into the house of the interpreter to receive uh, much encouragement. Uh, and then he will cross over the valley of the shadow of death and he will go into the celestial city. The title itself uh, defines every Christian. Uh, it is a journey that we are all on as believers. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, uh, we are told that uh, these all died in faith, speaking of those in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Peter would also add in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That defines us as Christians. We are indeed strangers in a strange land. Uh, we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. And it is that mentality that we must enter into every day of the Christian. We are to travel light. Uh, we will talk about the things that we need to throw off, uh, but we are indeed pilgrims, and that means that we are passing through, and that quickly. And one of the things that hinders the Christian is that we sometimes forget that we are pilgrims, and that we are uh, on a journey, and that it is a fast journey, and it is to be traveled as such as strangers, as I mentioned, in a strange land. And so what I want us to look at is first the Hebrews 12 uh, passage, and then eventually we'll get to the Revelation passage. And in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, you're very familiar with, with this text. It's, uh, it's the looking unto Jesus, the founder, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Uh, it comes on the heels of the Hebrew chapter 11 passage about uh, the, those who have gone before us. So we will look at two things tonight in regards to the pilgrim's journey, and, and I hope that you can follow along in the outline. The first one is we want to identify how do we travel this pilgrim journey. That will come from Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and, and verse uh, 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Uh, there are three things that I want us to look at in regards to that, actually four if we add verse 2. So there's four things out of the first two verses of Hebrews 12 that will identify for us how we are to travel this pilgrim journey. Uh, the next thing that we want to see is uh, the, the journey itself defined by Jesus. And when you look at uh, the, the phrases there, that Jesus is the author 
and finisher of our faith. We see that there's a starting point and that there is a finishing point. Jesus starts the life of faith in us. He finishes the life of faith in us. And as I was looking at that, I, I, I thought, well, what about the in-between? You know, what about the start of the Christian life and the end of the Christian life, which is recognized as Jesus being the author and the finisher? He's the bookends. Well, what about in-between? Well, in-between is the pilgrim journey. It is the journey that we are called to, uh, to run, uh, to, uh, to sojourn in this. So we are going to look at that. And the first thing we want to see is how are we to travel this? What are some key uh, elements that we are to incorporate in this pilgrim's journey? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Number one, we travel the pilgrim's journey on the backs of those who have gone before us is that this, this therefore points back to, to Hebrews 11. And we see here this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And they are enduring quite a bit as you read Hebrews 11. We won't. But one of the most encouraging things that you can do as a pilgrim is to look at pilgrims who have gone before you and have finished the journey. And so all through church history, beginning in Hebrews 11, we have these pillars of pilgrims that have gone before us, that have endured so much. And when you think that you can't endure anymore and that you need to step aside from the journey, go back and think about those who have gone before you. Go back even in your own life of Christians that you've known that have already gone to glory, that have set to find example. One of the great privileges I have had here, uh, being at Quinesset for, for 21 years, is I got to be a part of the greatest generation. When I first got here, there was a lot of the, of the greatest generation. And so I got to really get close to those who have walked the, the journey a long time. And, and I still have that. And I'm not calling them out as being, you know, on the back end, but, you know, Cal and Elaine. You know, I've got to spend all this time and, and watch them too as pillars and pilgrims who have set the standard of the journey. And so one thing that we do in, in, in how to walk this or travel this pilgrim journey is look to examples, living and those who have finished to encourage us on the way. Because you will not last if you try to make this journey a solo trip is that we are called to do this together. And so that's the first thing on how we travel. We travel by encouragement, one another in this life as fellow pilgrims, but by looking back. And that's, I encourage young Christians to read biographies, to read Christian biographies of Christians who have gone before. Read bi biographies of missionaries. Uh, read, read biographies of, of great uh, preachers, uh, of, of those who have labored uh, in difficult lands, difficult times, and have run the race. Now, read biographies by authors who's not afraid to identify the weaknesses of the character. Because sometimes you can read a biographer and that they will elevate the, uh, the, the subject so high that you almost think they're super Christian. And so be careful that you don't do that. But read about great history, great uh, Christians through history. So that's the first thing on how we travel. The second thing, look at, and also in verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It kind of ties in a little bit this morning. Is that we are to put away all hindrance, all hindrances that restrict our travel. Now when he says here, let us lay aside every weight and sin, so he's, these aren't the same is that the weight is not sin. 
they are things that will hinder, hinder, hinder us from traveling as we should as pilgrims. And it could very well be good things that hinder us. So let's make sure that we are evaluating ourselves as we travel and that we are laying aside all the hindrances that would, that would prevent us or hold us back from the pilgrim life. And then he would say that we would lay aside also the sin which clings so closely. Clings so closely. And this is the third principle on how to travel the pilgrim's journey. And that is stop all besetting sin. Stop all besetting sin. And yes, you can do that because Romans 6, 12 through 13 tells us we can do this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies and do not submit your members of instruments of unrighteousness. But yield yourselves and your instruments unto God as unto righteousness. So we have to stop all besetting sin that restricts our travel. And then the fourth principle on how we travel is found in verse 2. And, and that is the opening, looking to Jesus. Or we could say, fix one's attention on Jesus. Fix one's attention on Jesus. So uh, I'll define that here in a minute, but just by way of quick review, because I did not put this. Uh, yeah, well, actually, I did put it in your, in your outline. Is that these are the four key principles on how you travel as a pilgrim. Is number one, you've got to be encouraged by those who have gone before you or those who are traveling with you. Secondly, you've got to lay aside all the hindrances. Put them aside. Travel light so that you accomplish what you need to accomplish as a pilgrim. Third thing, stop all besetting sin. Because though hindrances will restrict your travel, besetting sin will stop the journey. Is hindrances will slow you down, but besetting sin will stop. Because besetting sin will grieve and quench the Spirit of God. And if you grieve and quench the Spirit of God, any spiritual growth has ceased. You don't lose your salvation, but you will lose your joy and you will lose growth. There will be no growth if you are tolerating besetting sin. You have to deal with that. Just like the, the, the Lord Jesus told the Ephesian church in the Revelation. Go back to your first works. Go back to your first works. So, and the fourth thing is fix one's eyes or fix one's attention on Jesus. Now, uh, where we're exhorted in verse 2, looking to Jesus. Looking trans, translates not just a glance. Or just even kind of seeing Seeing him. This means that you look away from one thing and on to another. This means that one object caps, captures your vision. It's to give full attention, unhindered and undistracted attention to the object. And in this case, it is the Lord Jesus. And we find the verse in Isaiah 45, 22, which was the verse that the cabbage farmer preached on that snowy day when Spurgeon was converted. When he couldn't get to where he was going, he, he, he pops into this Methodist church and the preacher wasn't there. So this, uh, this cabbage farmer was preaching and he wasn't a very good preacher. And, uh, but I'm sure that he really raised good cabbage. And what he did was he just kept uh, citing over again uh, Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved. Look to me and be saved. And, he, and Spurgeon says that, uh, that he felt like he was looking directly at him. And he says, you, you need to look. Look to me and be saved. Well, there's an example of the fixation upon Christ that we are called to in the Hebrews text. We also have Micah 7, 7. Therefore, the prophet says, I will look to the Lord. It is an unhindered, undistracted attention. Now, what, what is the object 
in regards to Jesus when we're called to look unto him as it is in how to, to live the Christian, the pilgrim life. Well, this is how we need to look at Jesus. We need to look at Jesus in four ways. One, we need to look at his person. We need to study the person of Christ. And not just in an exercise of academia. We need to, to, to study the person of Jesus to get to know the beautiful person of Jesus. To get to know the grace that's in Jesus. When Paul, I'm sorry, when John unloads, uh, I should say when he unfolds the, uh, the, the opening of John's gospel, he identifies the Lord Jesus not only as the word become flesh, but he said he was full of grace and truth. That's how, and we want to look upon Jesus' person. We want to see the fullness of his grace. We want to see the amazing love that flows from him. And we want to focus on his truth. The next thing in looking unto Jesus, we want to see his work. His work. And again, I mentioned that this morning. Visit the gospel. You have to visit the gospel regularly. You have to tell yourself the gospel regularly. Not only does it empower you to overcome Satan's accusations and the, con- the con- condemnation of your own conscience, you, but, but you've got to stay close and tell yourself the gospel because that's what keeps the heart tender. That's what keeps you from a falling prey to a lukewarm heart where you can know a lot of Christology, but yet the Christology hasn't inflamed your heart with the affection for Christ, which looking unto Jesus is supposed to do. So then we look unto Jesus in his person. We look unto Jesus in his work, in particular the atonement. And we look unto Jesus in his offices. In his offices. This is something I've tried to stress here over the last couple of years is learn to see Jesus beyond Savior. Learn to get beyond seeing Jesus just as your Redeemer. Study Him in His office as priest. It is thrilling to the soul to know and to constantly lean upon the fact that the God-man ever intercedes for His people. And that He constantly is praying for us. So study Him in His office as priest. Look upon Him also as your King. As your King. Is because part of the, uh, of the issue of walking as a pilgrim and part of the issue of laying aside sin is understanding the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. Is he's your king. He has every right to dictate you know, what is acceptable and what is not in our lives. And so study him uh, in his offices as priest, king, and also as prophet. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, is that you have not so learned Christ. Christ is our teaching prophet. And here's a fourth way that we look unto Jesus, and that is in his roles to us. In his roles to us. And we could talk so many, so many uh, things about this, but two I want to add, I encourage you to study Christ in as looking unto him. Look unto him as your shepherd. As your shepherd. Make Psalm 23 personal between you and Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He will solve all your discontent. And then also think of Jesus as your counselor, the wonderful counselor a child is given. And so that's, that's the, the defining, or I should say, that's how we are to travel the pilgrim life. We are to do so by being encouraged by those who have gone before us, both through history and now. Uh, we also are to lay aside all hindrances, not um, Not sin, but lay aside all the hindrances. And then we stop all besetting sin that would hinder our pilgrimage to the celestial city. And then finally, we fix our attention upon the Lord Jesus. Now, I want us to look at defining the pilgrim's journey. 
How would we define the pilgrim's journey? What would that look like? Well, in verse 2, we see looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author and finisher of our faith. As I mentioned, there is a start in the Christian life. Yes, we are chosen in the covenant of redemption uh, from eternity past, a pact between the Son and the Father, and in time and space we do come become Christians. Uh, there is a start in the Christian life, and there's also a finish in the Christian life. Uh, it will be death or it will be when Christ comes back. But as, as I tried to say earlier, is that what about the white space in between? You know, what about that? That's the pilgrim's journey. That's where we are called to, to walk. We are called on this, this pilgrimage. And so what would that look like? What does the life of sanctification look like? What does the in-between look like? Well, I thought the best way to look at this, since we are seeing in verse 2, looking to Jesus, well, what did Jesus' life look like in the in-between? Because Jesus had a start and finish as well. We have a start and finish in the life of faith. Jesus had a start and finish in the life of a mission, the mission he was on. He came, there's the incarnation, there's the start, and then there is the finish, there is the resurrection and the ascension. So we have that there's an in-between in Jesus' life too. So I think it's the life of a pilgrim, and there's no one who lived the life of a pilgrim more so than Jesus. He knew that this was not his home. He knew that he was here uh, on a mission. He knew even at 12 in the temple that he was about his father's business. So we can look at Jesus as the example uh, of defining the pilgrim's journey. So I want us just to offer you three things. Three things about the pilgrim's journey as we see in the life of Jesus. And the first one is this. Is that the journey is one of toil. The journey is one of toil. I know that you know this. Uh, but I need to remind myself of this is because we're not overly reminding ourselves enough, I think, of the toil necessary to run this race. Is it so easy to just get wrapped up in the daily routines of life and forget the big picture, so to speak? And the big picture is that we are called to a life of toil. We are called to a life, and the most exhausting thing that you ever do in the Christian life, I was talking to someone day about this. I said, do you know that when you sign up to be a Christian, I said, you are embarking on the most difficult thing that you've ever done in your life. And I said, it's not because you're trying to earn God's favor. It's because the call to die to yourself is the most difficult and challenging thing that you'll ever do. And it's so true. Is it this life of toil? And Jesus, if you look at his life, and I know that you have, and when you read the Gospels, you will see that the God-man lived a life of constant toil. Um, in John chapter 9, verse 4, he said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As Jesus was keenly aware that he was on a mission and that his mission consumed him and his mission directed him in everything that he did. And it was a life of exhausting toil. When he goes to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, it says, And Jesus wearied of his journey. That word wearied, he wasn't a little tired. He didn't need a power nap. He was exhausted. He was absolutely spent when he got to the well. That's what the word means. And Paul would say to the Corinthians, I would rather be spent and spend for you. Those are the very same words is that, that about describing Jesus' weariness is that Paul understood that his labors for the gospel, his labors for other Christians, was a labor of toil. 
And so if, if we think, and I, I know in this crowd here tonight, uh, it's not you, so I don't know why I'm saying this, but I'm going to, is, um, is that we, we know that it's going to cost us to be a Christian. We know that we're going to have, if we're going to raise godly children, it's going to cost us. We know that if we're going to have godly marriages, it's going to cost us. We know that if we're going to serve sacrificially in our churches for the maturing of the saints, it's going to cost us. And I think it was Howard Hendricks that said, the service that doesn't cost is the service that doesn't count. And that's so true, is that you will have times that you just want to throw in the towel. You'll have times you say, I'm just tired. I don't want to do this. And Paul would say, therefore, let us not grow weary in well-doing, because we shall reap if we faint not. And there, are, there will be times in the Christian experience where you're going to just say, I'm tired. I'm just tired. And then you run to Nehemiah 8.10. And you find that Nehemiah encourages God's people by saying, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the first thing that we see in the, in the life of Jesus is that this pilgrimage life, it is, the, it is a life of toil or a journey of toil. And we want to get to the point where we're able to say like Jesus and like the Apostle Paul. In John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer he said to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And Paul says at the very back end of his last letter he wrote before he went to a martyr's death, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And every one of us want to be able to say that. We want to be when the twilight is, is, is coming down upon our lives, if the Lord doesn't come back, and we have spent ourselves for the cause of Christ in our families, in our churches, in our communities. We want to be able to look back and say, it is well with my soul. Is that we have no regrets. And the only way that you can do that is you've got to take the very short view of the Christian life. And when I say short view of the Christian life, that means you have to take the view of just today. Just today, obey God. Just today, love people. Just today, share the gospel. Just today, seek the Lord. Just today, uh, deny yourself. Just today. If you look at yesterday or if you look at tomorrow, all you have done is waste today. And so then the Christian pilgrimage, it is a journey of toil. And when we get to the end of life, we want to be able to look ahead to that great day. And we want to be able to say, I gave I gave him my best. I gave him my best. And I look forward to that time when I see him. And he looks at me. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we're going to be able to look back and say, it wasn't I, but it was you and me. Because I was ready to throw in the towel numerous times. And so then this journey modeled by Jesus, this pilgrimage that we're called to, is one of toil. And I know, oh, by the way... Uh, you never retire from the Christian life. There's never a point that you're just going to take a break. I, I, I wish there was, but that's not true. John, Jonathan Edwards says that, uh, you know, the place of rest and warfare is for another land. This is the time of toil and labor. And so it's so true is that we have to understand uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There is not an end time of that. 
Now, I admit as we grow older and, and our capacities uh, lessen and stuff, but all that does is just changes the way we serve. It just changes the, de- the, 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 demo- it changes the way that we, we are used in ministry. But we never have a point where we're not abounding in the work of the Lord because Paul would go on to say that the, your labor is not in vain. So the first thing that we have um, in regards to this life, this pilgrimage life, defined by the Lord Jesus, is number one, the journey is one of toil. Secondly, from the life of Jesus, looking unto Jesus, not only in in showing us how to walk it, but defining the pilgrim journey, we find that it is a journey of suffering. It is a journey of suffering. And and I would confess to you that I, I say a lot about suffering from this pulpit. Um, and, you know, and someone says, you talk a lot about suffering. And I said, well, the Bible says a lot about suffering. And, um, and so we, we cannot shy away from the repetition of what the, God, the Bible repeats often. And in a culture that is so adverse to suffering, and a culture that is so given over to comfort, is, and, and, and everyone suffers and everyone is a victim and everyone is not my fault. We have got to be careful as Christians that we are not inoculated by the culture. And that means that suffering for the Christian must not be rebelled against. Is that suffering for the Christian must be embraced. Because the Lord Jesus embraced suffering. In fact, he told his disciples that he was going to suffer. He made no. He 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 made he he made no um, no attempts to shy, shy, uh, shy away from giving that to them. He says that the Son of Man is going to suffer, and that he's going to suffer many things, and he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed, and three days rise again. But let's not forget that the last week of Christ's life. That was not the only form of suffering. He suffered from the very beginning to the end. His whole life was one of suffering. Suffering misunderstanding, suffering rejection, suffering shame. It goes on and on and on. And so as a Christian, and Peter would remind us, as Christ left us an example, so follow him. And Paul in Romans 8 would say that the Spirit bears witness with us. That we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, provided we suffer with him. And Paul would go as far as to say that I might know him. And the, re- and the fellowship uh, of his sufferings. And so when you look at the, pil- the pilgrimage as a Christian. And you read these biographies of Christians. You're going to find a common thread in all of them. At least two common threads. Number one was the obsession with the person of Jesus Christ. And secondly with the willingness to not only suffer. But to embrace suffering and to rejoice in our suffering. You say well I, I can't do that. That's precisely the point, is in and of yourself, you cannot rejoice in your suffering. In and of yourself, even as a Christian, you're going to complain about your suffering. And, all, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying this to be harsh or anything, because I'm just as guilty as anyone else. But do you know what it says when we complain in our suffering? It, 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 it tells us that we are spiritually immature. Because the Christian life is not only a journey of toil, but it is a journey of suffering. Do you understand that heaven, one of the great blessings of heaven, is that we're going to be free from suffering? That isn't the ultimate reason why we want to go to heaven. But we read in the the Revelation, and we're going to read that again. In the Revelation, we read that there's not going to be any of that anymore. 
So let's don't be surprised it's going to happen in this life. In fact, let's expect it. Because the Lord Jesus models for us the pilgrim life. The journey of toil and the journey of suffering. And suffering for the Christian is good. Very good. And the reason why it's good because it does two things. It purges us from worldliness. It creates humility and submission. Finally, uh, we see then that Jesus defines the pilgrimage of the Christian by the journey that is fruitful. The journey that is fruitful. In John 12, 32, the Lord says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There are almost three billion Christians in the world today. And look how it first started. Twelve unassuming guys and a crucified carpenter who rose from the dead. And yet today there's three billion Christians, roughly three billion Christians. I would say that the Lord Jesus was quite fruitful and that in his short span, three and a half years, that he lived a fruitful life. His journey was fruitful. You may have heard of this poem. It was popular. It was penned in 1926, One Solitary Life. Uh, If you haven't, it's pretty good. Um, the author is, is cited as unknown, but it's attributed to James Allen Francis. And as I mentioned, it was written in 1926. Uh, this reference to the 20th century, though we could change it to 21st, it'd be the same. And he writes this one solitary life about the Lord Jesus. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles in the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompanied greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty or twenty-one centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. And for us, the journey is to be a fruitful journey. We're just not coasting our way into heaven. And the pilgrims, uh, pilgrims don't just coast. They have a fixed destination, and they navigate towards that. And the life of the Christian is to boast to be a life of toil, a life of suffering, and a life of fruitfulness. And Jesus would tell us in the parable of the vine and the branches that we are to be fruit-bearing people. In fact, if we're not bearing fruit, then we have every right to question whether or not we're even in the vine. And he would say that we are to bear, in John 15, 1 through 5, I won't, I won't read it, but John through 5, he says uh, that we are to bear fruit. Then he says you're purged so that you'll bear more fruit. And then later on in verse uh, 5, he would, say, he would say you're further purged so that you would bear much fruit. And so we should see in the Christian experience as our pilgrimage goes on, we should see the bearing of fruit. We should, the increasing of fruit. 
and then much fruit. And what is this fruit? The fruit is simply two things. It is the fruit of the character of Jesus Christ becoming more and more pronounced in us and the influence from us for Christ. And that influences in our homes, our influences in our communities, our influence in our churches. So that is the pilgrim journey, um, uh, how we to travel it, as well as defined by the Lord Jesus. Now, that's, that's the in-between. Now, let's get to the back part, and we'll wind this down with this. Is in the Revelation, we read that. What is the end for the pilgrim? It's heaven, the new Jerusalem. And in, in Revelation 21, 21, 1 through 5, I just want to quickly give you three things of encouragement. When, when we look at heaven, we don't know a whole lot about heaven, uh, but when we, when we focus on what we do know, three things. Who is present? What will be our experience there? And what is absent? Number one, who is present? Now, I know that we long to get to heaven, and I want to see some of the great Christians of history. And I hope to see, uh, I, I hope to see my, my mother. I hope to see my brother. But do you know who's present and who is the central theme of heaven? It's not our loved ones, and I don't dismiss that. It's the Lamb, and it's the throne. It's God. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We are heading towards the dwelling place of God. We are heading as a fulfillment of the new covenant to the place where God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me and I will remember their sins no more. Let me uh, give you a little bit of homework here. Read Revelation 4 and 5 and, and pay attention to the fixation in heaven. And you're going to find that the, the, the two things mentioned in those two chapters are the throne and the lamb. And that is who we are going to see. Think often of the pilgrim journey and think often of the end. And not to the end of the place primarily, but the person we're going to meet at the end. Is we're going to the Father's house. And we're going to see with our eyes, literally, our Redeemer, our Shepherd, our God. And so who is present there at the end? It is Him. It is Him who made the pilgrim journey possible. And so when you want to throw in the towel and you're, you're tired, fix your eyes on Jesus as he is then, or as he is now then. Who's, who are we going to see? We're going to be with him. Secondly, what will be our experience when we get there? Verse 3 of also the revelation, he will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you know that the, mo- the, the experience in heaven is certainly going to be one of perfect worship, but it's going to be one of perfect fellowship. Is it, it's going to be a place where we are going to be able to bask in the glory and the beauty of our Lord forever and ever without any taintedness of our fallenness. That is what makes heaven heaven is that we are going to be in a place where we are able to fulfill our created purpose and our recreated purpose in Christ Jesus, and that is to fellowship with God. And we are to have that experience in some measure now. 
In John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire or I will that they also whom you give me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's a staggering truth is that God wants us to be with him. He has made every provision possible that we could be with him. And not just to escape this world, but to bask forever in his person. To marvel over the amazement of grace. And to forever sing the song of Moses, the song of redemption, because of what Christ has done. And so, who's going to be there? He's going to be there. Secondly, what will be our experience? Him. And finally, what is absent at the end of the journey? And he will wipe away every tear. We read this often. I have numerous times at funerals. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more suffering. No more cemeteries. No more disappointments. No more getting old with broken bodies. All that's gone. I'll close with this story. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a really interesting story. There was a preacher, and he once announced that he would be speaking on the next Sunday on heaven. During that week, a beautiful letter was received from an old man of his church who was very, very ill. The following is part of this letter. Pastor, next Sunday you are to talk about heaven. I am interested in that land Because I've held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor purchased for me a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It is not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I've been sending materials out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me, which will never need to be remodeled nor repaired because it will be suited perfectly and individually and will never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundations, for, the rest, for they rest on the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. Nor locks or bolts will ever be placed upon its doors. For no vicious person can ever enter that land where my dwelling stands. Now almost completed my home and almost ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally without fear of being rejected. Now there is a valley of deep, a valley of deep shadow between the place where I live in California, Pastor, and to which I shall journey in a very short time. I cannot reach my home in that city of gold without passing through this dark valley of shadows. But I am not afraid because the best friend I ever had went through the same valley long, long ago and drove away all its gloom. He has stuck by me through thick and thin. And since we first became acquainted 55 years ago and I held his promise in printed form never to forsake me or leave me alone, he'll be with me as I walk through that valley. And I shall not lose my way because he is with me. Pastor, I do hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home in Los Angeles. But I have no assurance that I shall be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey. And there's no return coupon. And there's no permit for baggage. Yes, I'm all ready to go. And I may not be here while you're talking next Sunday about where I went. But someday, Pastor, I look forward to seeing you.
there's a man who understood what it was to be a pilgrim. And so we are called to be pilgrims. Friends, do not get so locked in in this world that you live as if you think that this is it. And don't let suffering cause you not to lose your hope. And don't let the, all this happening around in our world cause you to be afraid. We are just traveling through on a pilgrim's journey. And he who has gone before us walked the journey before us. And he also walks it with us. May God help us to be like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And like this man. Understand we're just passing through. We're headed to the place. No more tears. No more suffering. No more toil. Until then, let's cry together. And let's toil together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for uh, the truth that uh, we are passing through. And we praise you for the hope we have in Christ. That this world, as messed up as it is, it's not our home. May you impress that more and more upon us. And may we be such a people that are so weaned from the world that people would ask the reason for the hope that we have. And that we would give to them the very answer that we've been given. That in the Lord Jesus we have hope beyond the grave. Headed to a place where we'll be pilgrims no longer. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.